know that a significant proportion of cancers, up to 35-40%, can actually be prevented through lifestyle and diet. And that's a pretty startling statistic. And I think most people would rather prevent it than actually have treatment for cancer. There's no doubt about that. And in terms of statistics, even... The World Health Organization predicts that about 80% of cardiovascular disease, so heart disease and diabetes, which are again on the rise, we can prevent a lot of those really by addressing lifestyle and diet. Hi, and welcome to the Vegan Women Collective podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Marsh, and I'm the director of the Vegan Women Collective, an organization that highlights and supports the activism and entrepreneurship of vegan women through panels, workshops, and this hopefully interesting, inspiring, and informative podcast. For this episode, I spoke with oncologist Dr. Despina Handolias, who, in addition to her work in cancer treatment and research, also sits on the board of Food Frontier and disseminates information on cancer prevention through her Instagram page, at Vegan Oncologist. Despina and I spoke about the lack of governmental support and action around chronic illness prevention, how she relentlessly advocates for the removal of processed meats classified as a class 1 carcinogen from the ongoing food offering of hospitals, and her support of food innovation and research in order to increase the accessibility of plant-based options on the market. Before we head to the interview, I would like to profusely thank my first Patreon supporter, This is a great opportunity for me to say that if you like what we do and you think that the podcast has value, you can head to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash veganwomencollective, where you can support us for as little as $5 a month. Also, we have two events coming up in Melbourne in June. Uh, The first one is this Saturday, June 1st, and is part of the Specialist Workshop series and is an afternoon of learning and activities around vegan health and nutrition with the vegan and accredited practicing dietitian, um, as well as accredited nutritionist, Ebony McCorkle. The second event is a panel and networking session on branding and design and business featuring three absolutely incredible uh, vegan branding designer and business leaders and that's taking place on the evening of Thursday the 27th of June Um, and to purchase tickets for this one you can visit both our website which is veganwomencollective.com or Instagram at veganwomencollective. On that note I hope you enjoy this conversation with the vegan oncologist Dr. Despina Handolias. Let's start the show. So welcome to Spina. Thank you, Rachel. I always like to start the interview by asking, how did you find yourself becoming vegan and what was your journey towards veganism? I came to it really following an acute understanding and awareness of the suffering of animals in the animal agriculture industry. And that was really as a result of... Animals Australia and their ban live export, um, which is probably a, a common story that people tell with respect to their vegan journey. I think Animals Australia is a great group and they've been very instrumental in helping us understand all these issues. But I remember it, that was 2011 and I remember at the time I had no idea about this. And during that particular rally, uh, Animal Liberation came up on stage and they discussed what happens to animals in slaughterhouses 
And I think most of, the, oh, some of us at least, and certainly me, I thought, oh, I wonder why they're talking about this. So like everyone else, you know, I was really conditioned to think that the purpose of a farm animal was to what we do, we, what, you know, how we exploit them in everyday life. It was nothing different about me necessarily compared to the rest of the audience. And that began the journey of gathering information, understanding things a little bit more, trying to figure out ways around it, but ultimately I realised there wasn't. And it wasn't an immediate thing. It was the gradual not including certain products in our, in our diets and then ultimately in the, in a, within a few months we became a vegan household and yeah, it, was, it, was a, it was a tough journey. It was a lot of anger and grief, which is not, an, as I said, an unusual path that people take. I suppose most people feel that I probably would have become vegan as a result of health and um, not from your profession that's right so but it really stemmed from an understanding of animal sentience and the injustices that they face in these animal exploitative industries so that's how it all happened really that means that you were well into your practicing career as an oncologist correct how did that affect how you practice It wasn't clear. The first effect that it had was how I interacted with my colleagues more than anything and how I how I was able to do a ward round watching cancer patients in wards around the hospital eating animal flesh. And it was really quite difficult for me. And particularly given that uh, the profession and the hospitals are really supposed to represent areas and uh, people that are compassionate and caring and kindness. These are words that are thrown around all the time as part of many hospitals' mantra. So these are the words that you know always c- would come up, and then I'd see all this on a day-to-day basis, both on what I, what patients were consuming, what my colleagues were drinking and eating. So there was a lot of um, concern about that. It wasn't necessarily that, you know, I had a concern about giving medications or drugs to people, knowing that they had been previously tested on animals. I think that's a really difficult area and a grey area, particularly given, as I said, my profession. And unfortunately, most of the work in the cancer field is tested on preclinical models and particular mouse models. Yes, it was more that personal difficulty with watching and observing my colleagues and patients being a part of this industry that causes so much suffering. Yeah, and the cycle of exploitation. Yeah, and, and understanding these are relatively intelligent people who, you know, by all intents and purposes, are kind and caring and, as I said, compassionate. Um, but really, when I figured out was that people's compassion tends to be limited to, uh, you know, the, they ration it out. They don't really see beyond the human element. And that's, that's what was very striking to me, uh, working in that sort of environment. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily just a hospital environment. I think it applies anywhere, but in particular in the hospital, only because, as I said, we're supposed to be caring and compassionate uh, as a unit, as an, uh, individuals as well. Yeah. yeah. Now you do quite a bit of advocacy around health mm-hmm. and diet. So that's right. How did it become more about from the interactions that you were having with people to mm. taking an kind of an active stance as to how veganism and basically following more of a plant-based diet, yeah. the effect that it can have on on your illness and your and your cancer ultimately. Yeah, I think just again through well, what can I do in terms of my skill set that will assist animals but also assist human animals as well, so non-human and human. And what I realized what, what was bad for animals um, was also bad for humans. 
my interest in food and nutrition. So it was sort of side interest. I loved to cook, etc. So it was really um, a great way sort of marrying my love and also understanding of science and then applying that to my, my clinical practice. And you know, as doctors, we're supposed to be educators as well. And what I'd sort of come to realise through um, exploration of the data and attending uh, conferences, uh, my sister's a dietitian as well, so having discussions with her, was that we weren't doing the right thing by patients by promoting certain diets within hospital systems and also by doctors in themselves not really understanding nutritional science and how much of an effect it has on individual health and obviously public you know wider health community health as well so i took it upon myself to get a bit more educated and to start to provide little seminars and education sessions for my colleagues well, that's great yeah and also for the allied health staff so nursing staff dietetic staff and um, other staff that might be interested in hearing about it about diet and particularly the cancer connection but also other chronic diseases and that's how it all went from there i've done some gp seminars as well and at the moment we're actively involved in creating a wellness program in our cancer service which is something that um the my colleagues as a whole and the cancer service at, at the place that I work is very you know, keen on doing it. The way it will be implemented is something that hopefully I'll get to be a significant part of and <laughs> that's going to be the challenge. But certainly I think it's important to educate them first because really the education has been severely lacking. Is it being well received and has it been growing with the visibility of, of veganism in the media and everywhere at the moment i think subtly yes yeah um, i think from my point of view it's been well received people enjoy the content and they also realize that it's been a gap in their knowledge that they're very happy to to feel from a personal point of view as well i think people are appreciative of the information because there's a lot of preventative work that's been done and, and studies that have been done that again people don't really know about sort of large prospective population-based studies that give us some important information about uh, diet and disease and how or how to prevent disease and then with I think uh, you know we're all human and we we are susceptible to outside influences and And I think from a popular media point of view, just having that in the background, people understanding that there is this you know, rise in, in veganism must mean that you know, there's, there's an interest there and there might be a, there's certain uh, triggers or key reasons why people are interested and certainly health and is one of those. So I think it's helped to some degree. And of course, just obviously by having more food available. And I always talk about my experiences. And as I said, I, I, I like to, to cook and create personally. And I offer that to my colleagues at work. And I've provided food for my <laughs> breakfast meetings. So they're really... That's nice. Yeah. So it's, um, I think it's important to, for them to understand that it's, it's actually not that hard if we just retrained ourselves, if we just knew how to use the tools Uh, and then combine that with the understanding and just reframe our understanding of how to consume a, a plant-based diet and in turn not do the harm that we've been doing to the animals and ourselves. It's really interesting because I think a lot of the people that go vegan for ethical reasons then advocate for the same, whereas it seems like you've come at it from an ethical standpoint, but now because of what you do in your everyday life you've seen that probably the best way to instigate change 
in what you do is through the the health reasoning. Um, yeah, you're right. I think that it's it's really important to. And I've been we've all studied for long periods of time, and I think that we have a basic skill set that we can apply to uh, not only our passions but our what we learn over time. And I think from the uh, the health avenue was the, the obvious avenue to, to to keep pursuing. Oh, for sure. I'm also a animal advocate. I think from a um, just through my conversations with people, attending certain rallies, etc. But yes, I predominantly I, I come at it from the, the health perspective. Do people realise? Yes, I'm very open about it and fairly vocal about it. And my Instagram page is clear on that because I think we should have compassion for all living beings not yeah. just humans so I think that it's important to be open and people may certainly pick up on that although I haven't really had anyone sort of come at me saying well you, you know I suppose what you're potentially getting at is there is is there a certain bias there um, and I think that I don't think we can separate the two I, I think we for need sure. to yeah. um tell people that it's really important to advocate for animals as well as humans and that by going down as to the health perspective we are advocating for both and I think from a doctor point of view our main philosophy in terms of our practice is to first do no harm yeah and I think that should apply to non-human animals as well Can you just tell me about your journey into becoming a doctor? So what mm. what made you decide to oh. go into medicine and then to go into oncology? Oh, I've been a doctor for a while now. It's been a long <laughs> course. Uh, uh, I think it was really the biology of cancer and the bi uh, biology of disease, number one, in terms of medicine. I always knew I wanted to have a science focus in terms of university. So it was always, always science orientated. And then from there... Uh, it was really interesting because we had a chemistry group called the Borons. We were really geeky nerds. <laughs> That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, it feels very Big Bang Theory to yes, me, exactly. but in a different yeah. kind of vein. Yeah, it was. It was, and it was fun. You, you know, Year 12 chemistry, organic chemistry was really a lot of fun. So it all stemmed from that. Um, so science was something I wanted to do, and I've happened to get the marks in Year 12 and kept obviously did six years of undergrad medical training and then from there it was just the due process of being an intern resident registrar and then I initially thought I wanted to do surgery because um, I had some really impressive mentors who were very fine surgeons through the Monash University and the clinical school there but realized that from a lifestyle point of view it wasn't for me sure um, and then I thought mm, well doing general medicine was a more of a thinking person's medicine it was a lot of and I, I classify it personally as being a, a medical detective really it's about putting yeah. the pieces together getting the information putting the pieces together and then coming to some sort of conclusion and then ultimately a management plan so from there on I went away for a little bit and did some um, I initially actually thought after finishing my training in general medicine that I wanted to do clinical trial work okay um, So I went overseas and did some work at a clinical research organization in the UK for a couple of years. And it was really just testing drugs on healthy human volunteers, just to see how they respond to them, how they metabolize the drugs, if there are any adverse reactions that they... So that was pretty basic. That was pretty simple sort of work. And thereafter, I decided I wanted to do oncology because of the... I just was interested in biology of cancer. It's really fascinating because of the way... We haven't really been able to hit it on the head, so to speak. There are so many pathways and intricacies involved in, in cancer. 
Um, so I thought that was interesting and that married in my interest in um, drug development. And I ended up coming back and doing three years of advanced training in oncology here in Melbourne. And after that, went to Peter Mac and did a higher degree. Uh, so I did a, 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 an MD in um, molecular oncology, looking at particular pathways in cancer. It's all very boring. <laughs> no, it's fascinating because my brain is so not science-driven yeah. in, in yeah. that sense, despite the fact that I'm doing a PhD. The science side yeah. is not, yeah. it's just my, yeah. it's never been me. So I find it fascinating when I meet people that have that, I think, I mean, the, the lab work was really interesting. We did a lot of work in, on cell lines and, and, and things like that. I, was, I had a great uh, supervisor and I had a, a really, I'm really, I've always been impressed by scientists. Uh, they're, they're amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, I um, agree. <laughs> and I worked in a lab with some scientists. That was, it was a lot of fun, but it was, it was back to studying and back to doing a uh, more work, um, unpaid work, and we ended up with a thesis and then subsequently did some clinical work in a public and private type setting and sort of that's where we are at the moment, yeah. That's great. Mm. Where were you in your career in 2011 mm. when you started your vegan journey? Okay. I was doing my training, my advanced training in oncology. So I think it was my second year of training in oncology specific jobs. Right. And yeah, that was that was when it happened. So from your advocacy yeah. online and things like that, have you found that using a forum like Instagram to mm. disseminate information mm you've reached other professionals that are in the same kind of area as you that you can basically reach with that information to other oncologists or? possibly it's hard to know i don't i don't know how many of my colleagues or other oncologists that actually follow me for example on instagram no um, one's like reached out to you no saying, there are some nursing staff that have because they follow that's me nice. so they're I, I take the opportunity to talk to them as much as i can when 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 it's particularly relevant i mean they're all busy and they're doing great jobs and they are yeah again nurses are pretty amazing too for they're sure a tough job but yes no I, i've talked to them one-to-one -one in group settings they, they do understand and they do follow me but in terms of my medical colleagues as in the doctors that i work with i don't think many of them would really they're would, too busy maybe they're too busy <laughs> I, and I, look i'm not sure how much they engage in social media on that in terms of that particular platform I do, at any opportunity uh, at work, um, talk to people about animal rights issues, and and I also give out when it's Chris Kringle time. I would you know give a relevant gift. For example, I gave our psycho oncologist a copy of uh, Animal Liberation, Peter Singer, recently, That's and I've really given nice. yeah. I've given, uh, it was a, another book, and I can't remember the name of it. Oh, the, the Sexual Politics of Meat, I don't know. Right, And yeah. it's all relevant to the people, like what perhaps they would connect with. So knowing their particular interests personalities and, and interests. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I've been able to do that. And I always engage our clerical staff about what happens to animals in these industries, particularly if we're, for example, someone, it's usually the case that someone brings it up. So I don't necessarily bring it up myself. Yeah. Someone brings it up, so I, I would then talk about it so you're known as the, the oh, yes, vegan in yes. the office they often call me they say to me oh you're the ethical one what do you think about this it's like well i'd like to think that all we're of, all we all are ethical 
Um, but when it comes to understanding um, ethics surrounding animals, then, yeah, it's really important. I, I really don't think we should segregate it. I, I really feel that there's a real mental block there. As we know, people are just so conditioned to to believe that animals are, can be used and abused for, the, for their purpose. Yeah. And that's where the stumbling block exists, both in my professional and um, yeah, in personal life with family, etc. So, yeah. yeah. I find that really interesting because you said that ethically you know a lot of drugs are tested on animals Mm. and things like that Mm. and that you had an interest in even in drugs and clinical trial so how do you reconciliate all those things the clinical so the clinical trial is ultimately just testing drugs on people that they're already in good health so basically you're just seeing if they're having an adverse reaction that's right but do you advocate for the end of animal testing of those drugs on Oh, you said mouse models? Yeah, that's right. A lot of them are mouse models, but ultimately they do go into primates, etc. It's very difficult to reconcile it. I think I've pushed it to the back of my head, quite honestly. I think it's just the normal reaction from my point of view because I'm a medical oncologist. I give out chemotherapy as a living. Whether I'll do that for the rest of my life is debatable and I don't think it, you know, it's something that I will continue to do. Certainly the medications and drugs that we use have done a lot of good, but they've also been at the ex- at huge expense, obviously. I follow groups like Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine yeah. and, and support them because they are advocating for alternatives to animal testing, and I think that's amazing, and um, I think we should be pushing for, for those sorts of models. Being a clinician, I'm not at the moment, I'm not really involved in that sort of research side, and I think it's really difficult to be across all those platforms of animal advocacy so I've really concentrated now on the nutritional science perspective but I appreciate that that's an area we certainly need to to work on and I'm hoping with technologies and I don't see why not that there are some very clever people out there doing those sorts of things and it it is happening but again as we know these processes are extremely slow slow. yeah it's always so slow when you said you went ahead and got yourself some nutritional training kind of on the side because of personal interest mm. how did you kind of go about doing that in the way that you felt was the most scientifically mm. in alignment because you have already you know you wouldn't necessarily go googling stuff and looking at wikipedia that's right i mean we've always practiced on the philosophy of being evidence-based and that's how we approach and i approach my clinical practice i mean there are obviously caveats to that and you know because we're all humans and you deal with humans but most of all we need to look at the evidence before we say um before we're comfortable with making decisions or giving out advice the way i went about that was really looked at the key the leading professionals the health professionals and doctors in these areas and sought out particular groups for example there's a a plant-based doctor group here in melbourne so contacted two leading people involved in that and have been to a couple of international conferences, the International Nutrition and Healthcare Conference in the US that have been particularly good, have, as a result of understanding who the key players are, whether it be through social media platforms, um, which are medically based, or through the plant-based doctors group in in Melbourne and, and beyond, I was able to then target my information to specific areas of specific individuals for example kim williams is an important a key figure in the cardiology and and healthcare realm and nutritional science 
um, obviously Michael Greger, nutritionfact.org, which, who, who is a testament to the evidence and applying that evidence to who we treat and what we treat. And uh, I was also involved in Lucy Stegley's... Um, Doctors who, for Nutrition. Yeah. yeah, Lucy, who I've had on the podcast yeah. previously. And <laughs> Lucy's group even Previous to that, we were able to do some presentations at um, various, you know, vegan or World Vegan Day, etc. So the group that she led prior to that. So we're, you know, various different avenues, but yes, essentially looking at the the science through reputable publication yeah. on researchers yeah is there a, is there a lot of research uh, mm. that is cancer-led specifically around plant-based nutrition there is they particularly looked at large populations of people and followed them over a period of time looking not only at cancer but other chronic diseases so Cancer is now considered to be a chronic disease because... Because it comes of, back or... Because people are living longer as a result, not only of... Mostly because of the way we're treating it. Uh, and we're also probably picking up cancers a bit earlier, although they may not be treatable, uh, curable. You know, they certainly can be treatable for a long, yeah. lengthy period of time. To see whether or not there is a difference based in terms of incidence, so those yeah. people who develop these diseases based on their nutritional habits and their diets, dietary patterns, and other lifestyle patterns as well. And yes, so large cohorts of patients have shown that there is a difference. So people with healthier lifestyle patterns and, and diets, particularly more plant-based diets, tend to have less cancer and they also have left chronic diseases there is some very interesting studies looking at very low risk populations and you've probably heard of the blue zones and the adventists so yeah. the adventists are you know, in california loma linda people that live in in that particular area tend to um, have low rates of chronic disease in, and cancer and they also tend to have particularly more healthful lifestyle habits. They tend to the, the interesting thing about that particular group is that they all tend to be non-smokers. They don't they don't drink alcohol. All the typical sort of lifestyle risk factors that people attribute to cancer and other chronic diseases. They tend to be fairly active in their day to day activities. But one difference amongst those living in that area and the, the Adventists in that particular part of California is that they have differences in their diets so the, there actually is a significant proportion of people who are vegan and they're able to com- therefore compare vegan diets versus lacto ovo yeah. om- omnivorous diets and they're able to discern based on reporting of um, diseases over time is that they did definitely have a decrease in the overall incidence of cancer when they followed them up over many many years and also the more common cancers particularly the, the bowel and the, the breast cancer which we see far outweigh all the other cancers that we see in the community. So there's a definite link there. They've also done multiple uh, other studies looking at other different groups around the world. That like the correlate China study. Yeah, the China study is a, it's a, marries up a lot of all this information and looks at, and again, they're all population-based studies. So if you look around the world to see which are the areas of the world that tend to be associated with less cancer and less chronic diseases, you're going to see that the more traditional People with more traditional diets that are more based on plants as compared to the traditional Western diet, which is high in meat and dairy and, and then lots of high fat intake. Again, you see the same sort of patterns recurring with respect to cancer and chronic disease. So less cancer, less chronic diseases in those parts of the world with a, with a high plant-based diet. More cancer 
If you look at a global cancer map, it's really obvious. More yeah. cancer in Australia and the US and other Western countries, which tend to follow these sorts of Western diets, high in animal products. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really dramatic when you look at even the cost of healthcare that could be re just reduced because you know by correlation, basically, if people were having healthier diets, their health, general health, would be better, and then we would have less healthcare costs. It's just, it's, people just don't see that big. And that's, no. you know, how unfortunate that people are not seeing the bigger picture. And it is sense. unfortunate. And that's what I'm trying to draw people's attention to. Because invariably in my talks, I do talk about burden of disease and the economic burden of what we're doing. So a lot of the drugs that we're using now in cancer cost a lot of money. And they cost a lot of money to develop, but also a lot of money now in terms of, you know, in terms of our eating into our healthcare costs. Well, the other interesting statistic that you'd like to know is that one in two Australians have a chronic disease. So no What? wonder we're spending so much money on healthcare. One in two Australians has a chronic disease. Yep. Cancer, diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, high cholesterolemia, rheumatoid arthritis, all the inflammatory diseases, autoimmune diseases, all wow. those sorts of diseases that are chronic. Um, obesity is classified as a chronic disease as well. So one in two Australians. And when you're over 60, two-thirds of Australians nearly have uh, at least two chronic diseases so you know gps are full of yeah two chronic diseases yes if you're over 60 uh there's a significant likelihood if you're australian and you just continue to do the, wow. the usual things that australians do in terms of lifestyle habits and nutrition that they're going to develop at least two chronic diseases the australian institute of health and welfare report 2011 and cancer is probably the most significant contributor to disease burden when it comes to what they call a daily adjusted life years lost so meaning productivity from and, and death um, so cancer is huge in terms of having a less productive uh, society basically as well if we can address some of the issues in a, in a preventative fashion and to reduce the relapse rates of cancer which would invariably lead to more economic burden more treatment down the track more sick leave the, the, the list goes on and on in terms of how it impacts the individual and also the, the economy and, and the community Um, then we can make a difference in terms of the uh, healthcare budget because I think disproportionately now we're just spending too much money on, on, on all these things that potentially could be preventable. And we know that a significant proportion of cancers, up to 30, 35%, 40%, can actually pr be prevented through lifestyle and diet. And that's a pretty startling statistic. And yeah, certainly you'd really? I think most people would rather prevent it than actually have treatment for cancer. There's no doubt about that. And in terms of statistics, even... You know, the World Health Organization predicts that about 80% of cardiovascular disease, so heart disease and diabetes, which are again on the rise, yeah. uh, and again a leading cause for um, source of um, health, significant healthcare problems for individuals. Yeah. We can prevent a lot of those really by addressing lifestyle and diet. And that's become so clear to me as I've gone through all this literature as we've been exposed to people who've come out and done the research and it's not just research looking at large populations of patients you know the research looking at reversing diseases for example um, heart disease um, through Dr Esselstyn's work through plant-based nutrition whole foods you know it's hard to do these sorts of um, what we call randomized studies or even intervention studies with plant-based diets because 
and 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 relate them to cancer because cancer is a it's a as I said it's a chronic disease and there are no immediate measures for it. So implementing uh, an approach or so an intervention in a large population of patients and then following them for for cancer risk down the track is going to be difficult because people change their ways, they go off the wagon. So there's a, it's difficult to, to really understand through these sorts of what we call randomised intervention studies using diet as to whether or not this will apply to cancer. So it's not necessarily the gold standard when it comes to cancer. But when you look at markers, so we look at a lot of biomarkers of inflammation, for example, yeah. um, in the colon, you know, if you change your diet to a whole food plant-based diet, we're seeing that the markers of inflammation are lower. So all these surrogates for, for cancer that w- you can test in this sort of immediate you know, with, within a two-week time frame or something like that after someone switched onto a, a plant-based diet can be very valuable. But there are limitations to doing long-term studies with respect to diet and cancer, which I think people use as an excuse sometimes, but you really got to put all the information together and look where the weight of the data is. And the weight of the data heavily is in favour of you know, a whole food plant-based diet with respect to reducing cancer risk, in addition to other lifestyle measures, as mentioned before, you know, maintaining healthy being weight, active. being active, not smoking, yeah. alcohol. <laughs> the obvious ones. The obvious ones. Well, which, which, I mean, they wouldn't have been obvious back then. So, like, That's right. It, this is all part of the transition to becoming more aware and, and people getting that information and research being put out there and then being, for lack of a better word, like simplified mm. for the average person on the street to absorb that information and make kind of a judgment call as to well I shouldn't smoke because yeah that's right despite the fact that in the 50s it was all about how good it is to smoke now we know that's not true so I feel like in that sense if you look historically then you know there is a potential for it to change you're right, yeah. For, and, and, yeah. And we need to point out the fact that no one did intervention studies you know, giving people cigarettes to smoke and seeing what happens. Yeah. It, that doesn't – it didn't apply. You couldn't do that. It's not an ethical approach yes. because we knew the, the correlation was that strong. And similarly, it's not an ethical approach to have a group of people and randomise one group to consuming processed meat for the next whatever period of time you'd like to study them for to see how yeah, it that would be awful yeah so yeah <laughs> so that's what people need to realize although science is amazing sometimes it doesn't uh, the rigidity of the, of clinical trials needs to be reassessed when it comes to certain interventions and when you're particularly looking at lifestyle um, we need to there are limitations but yeah as I said clearly there's there's a significant risk when it comes to certain foods like as I said, processed meat. And that wasn't because you know, there was an intervention study. It was because there were thousands of studies that had been looked at and meta-analyses, so large studies that had been combined to improve their statistical analysis that clearly showed that, that processed meats were a class one carcinogen. And the World Health Organization released that report back in 2015. But unfortunately, hospitals still... Serve it. Serve it. Easily accessible. They're not serving alcohol. Yeah. They, they banned smoking. So it's, it's, it's a really difficult area. I have proposed it on many of occasions and I'll continue to do so in, a, <laughs> in addition to other measures to try to help implement some positive change in, in the food service. I feel like you always need those advocates, those people that are actually going to be in the line of fire, if you might, because you probably aren't 
uh, making that many friends sometimes no, and, no. and you're probably getting a little bit of pushback or a little or one example was that I was working in a public hospital and they were trying to raise funds for a scalp cooling system which we often use for patients to try to prevent them from losing their hair with chemotherapy which can happen with a lot of breast cancer regimens that we use chemotherapies and unfortunately it's not government funded and it's an area obviously of need and they were trying to raise funds uh, one particular fundraiser that they invited me to was a sausage sizzle yeah, yeah so I, I, I wrote a very detailed email to all the clinicians in that uh, institution explaining why I think this was an inappropriate course to take and that really was going against the message that we're trying to promote which is to be healthful individuals and try to prevent cancer as opposed to perpetuate cancer and although there was some pushback from the staff I think they got the message in the end, whether that translated into an outcome in the long run, because I've since left that particular job, <laughs> I don't know. But it, it, it basically gave them an understanding that you, you, you just can't follow a community's habits, practices based on popular demand. We need to be leaders in terms of giving out sound advice. And I think there, there was always scope there that someone would call them out saying how could you be a cancer institution and try to raise funds for cancer but at the same time provide products that are clearly the antithesis of what you're trying to, to promote. And in particular to children, we know that eating processed meat, as I said, is a, is a carcinogen. We shouldn't be promoting smoking and we shouldn't be promoting the consumption of processed meats in, in young children. And we know that through studies, the consumption of um, red and processed meat, particularly in the early ages and in, into adolescence, is probably one of the key times that can influence risk of cancer in, in the long run, So, and in particular breast and the colon cancer. So I think it's a really important area to work on. And we should get away from all these terrible habits just because it's part of our tradition and part of the Australian way of life because it's a, a good fundraising opportunity. The alternative, obviously, is to have veggie sausages. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Which I, I suggested. <laughs> Even recently, the, the Australian's biggest morning tea, which is raising funds, I think, for cancer research yep. across all cancers, dairy consumption has been linked like directly linked with an increase in breast cancer yeah there is some evidence to support that it's more strongly linked i believe based on the literature that i've read to prostate cancer but certainly there is a link with with breast cancer and i always advise patients who ask me and i would certainly promote them avoid it consume soy because soy phytoestrogens in soy are actually shown to be beneficial in breast cancer despite all the myths Please debunk the myths. I, the myths I am, need to be debunked. <laughs> yes. So I'm opening the door if you okay. want to debunk the myths around soy because there is so there's so much noise. It seems like you have to, to pull through so much crap to find the correct yeah. data. I think creating doubt causes this problem. Yeah. And there's a lot of vested interests, obviously. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation through popular media and on social media. And I think that this all goes back a long, long time when the soy industry was a threat to the dairy industry and it's just continued to sort of be a misunderstanding based on, I think, some scientific nomenclature. The fact that soy phytoestrogens are the key phytochemical components in the soybean, which actually have the beneficial effects, makes for a lot of confusion. But in actual fact, the data on large groups of women s supports that those who are the 
consume the most soy, for, for example, in Eastern countries such as Asia, have less incidence of breast cancer, even if you adjust for other lifestyle and environmental factors that are related to breast cancer, including family history, etc. When you look at data on patients who actually have breast cancer, there is reduced chance of relapse or the breast cancer coming back if they are higher consumers of soy compared to low or no consumers of soy. And that relates to, as I said, what I talked about before, that phytochemical for the phytoestrogens in soy. So these are protective elements in soy that can have a number of molecular, the way they work in terms of how, the, from a molecular basis. They can stop cells from proliferating or growing and spreading. They can these components have and this has been shown in 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 the lab they can stop the growth of new blood vessel formation called angiogenesis which is a way that we're trying to stop cancers from growing so it's a natural way of preventing that so a number of different ways it's incredible that the soy phytoestrogen one particular um one called genistein which is most one most heavily studied can protect against breast cancer so there's a scientific link to what we're seeing in the population of soy drinkers who have you know, le- less chance of um, cancer coming back and uh, reduced incidence in the first place of breast cancer all up. And this applies to whether or not you have a hormone-sensitive cancer or a hormone-negative cancer. In, in most studies with people in the postmenopausal group, so after after menopause, uh, but also seen in premenopausal. So I think I think we need to put that soy myth to rest because it's really causing a problem for patients because if they feel that they should be as a, if they if they are consumers of dairy, um, if they feel that that's the safer option, then they're sorely mistaken. Um, and in fact, as I said, soy consumption can actually improve their outcomes. So soy is a very versatile bean. It's a bean after all. Yeah. <laughs> what I was going to ask is, so has this been studied with the bean being just at the bean level? Uh, or yeah. it can also, it depends, like you can, if you're eating tofu, if you're eating soy milk, or if it's been fermented and yeah. then... I think it's been, um, I think they've grouped them as a whole. So it's been studied as the the bean and the minimally processed soy, not the isolates, so not the large quantity that we might see in the meat analogues, but certainly soy beans, edamame, soy milk, tofu and tempeh. They're the sort of things, miso, etc. So yes, they sort of group them in terms of the benefit, yeah. Also, I'm an advocate for promoting a more sustainable food system. I'm actually on the advisory board for Food Frontier, uh, which I'm really passionate about again. Just another way that we can progress this evolution away from animal-based products to more plant-based products. And sometimes, as you've heard time and time again, probably that they may represent just a stepping stone for some people. And I've seen that personally, you know, even with my husband and myself, we, we, we enjoy them on occasion. And I, I think that's great. But, predominantly, you know, if we, we talk about specifically from a health perspective, you know, I think what we've heard all along is that uh, a plant-based diet centered around whole foods is the way to go. So more plants and that's the message i've been pushing to my colleagues and and friends and and anyone who cares to listen and patience patience, obviously is just add more plants to your diet but by by doing so you're going to crowd out all those other products that you're potentially cause a lot of damage and increase your risk of cancer and other diseases like heart disease and diabetes etc so if you put more plants in the less likely you are, you are to put the other stuff in and because there's such there's such growing evidence to support 
the including more plants in the diet from many different perspectives. Um, I think it's a message that we need to push even further. And particularly in our hospital systems, I really think we need to see institutional change there. Can you give me just the kind of the bylines of what uh, Food Frontier oh, does? Yeah. Um, it's a non-for-profit think tank. Um, that exists to accelerate innovations in protein, plant-based protein, into the market, basically. And that's Australian-based? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. great. So it's the equivalent, say, for example, of Good Food Institute in the US. So a lot of the uh, progress that's been made in supermarkets is probably as a result of the advocacy that Thomas has done and the liaison between the producers, so the companies in the over- particularly overseas and um, and the retailers here and the wholesalers here so he's been instrumental in helping get these products to out into the marketplace because the increase has been incredible especially in the place of vegan cheese and that's right the meat replacement i couldn't say exactly how much of that is is them but they are they have been very instrumental in in doing that and they're also looking at the research here in australia getting more biotech involved here in australia in terms of producing plant-based meat and that would be an area that i would encourage all science students to pursue because i think it'll be it's a growing area oh yeah it will become a very lucrative area and you're doing a whole lot of good because you're not only impacting individuals, you're impacting an ecosystem and the environment. Um, it's going to be huge, I think. I think it really needs to be. And I, and I think if we had smarter people here in terms of business owners and researchers and innovative governments that we'd be doing a better job of it. Yeah, it's it's hard, isn't it? It's there's just so much to do, and so many people that just want to continue the st- with the status quo. Also, corporate interest. It's it's all about status quo and corporate interest. We are spending millions of dollars on medication. Well, those places that are making the medication, they don't want people to go vegan. They want well, the money. Yeah. Well, number one, I don't think they believe it's a threat. And yeah. But number two, they're not willing or would they want to or they're interested in because it's just not their area of looking at preventative strategies. And that's where we rely on governments to introduce initiatives. We only spent, I, I looked at a statistic the other day, we spent 2% of our health budget on prevention. That's our health budget. That's insane. 2%. And that's the lot, one of the lowest in the OECD countries, Australia. So really, it's not a priority for our government. That's based on the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare report 2011. What constitutes prevention? Um, So look, public health strategies. um, So looking at all the lifestyle measures. So educating people about diet and physical activity and smoking and all the things we all know to be true. (laughs) But it doesn't reach everyone. And, and there's a lot of misinformation, as you know, and it needs to be reinforced. You know, the, the health issue when it comes to weight and how to maintain good weight is really important. That all goes back to physical activity and diet. Yeah, there's, there's all the lifestyle factors that are all related need to be, as I said, reinforced through public messaging. They need to be reinforced through educating the, um, the healthcare sector. So there's no, you know, fun, there needs to be funding certainly to do that. Uh, public health campaigns, vaccinations are uh, can be important too in prevention of cancer. So there are sort of other issues in terms of prevention and doing you know regular screening, um, right? Those sorts of things. Um, so it's 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 not a heavily focused area, and it obviously needs to be because a healthy population is important for productivity and to as I said reduce the the burden that we have on our economy. 
which can be funneled in obviously different ways. <laughs> and, and really focusing on, on cancers that we can't treat, that are difficult to treat, that may not have obvious lifestyle-related links and, and other diseases. Um, but that's, that's what systems are all about. It's really retraining and learning from experience and how to evolve and change systems in order to meet um, the change in the environment and what's happening to the, the, the people out there. So we're way behind, um, I think. And look, I'm not saying that other nations necessarily do it a lot better because there's a lot of disease out in other countries, but certainly they're acknowledging that these are issues. And based on the, the data uh, in terms of spending, we are, we are well behind. And that was Dr. Despina Handolias, vegan oncologist, food activist, and researcher. It was such a pleasure to discuss with her and host another health professional on the podcast. It really is resonating with me more and more that a whole foods plant-based diet really is the way of the future. And I hope that you will join me in maybe auditing the way that we eat. And I know that sometimes I can take the easy option and be a bit of a junk food vegan, which is not to say that that's not all right. But, you know, as advocates of the vegan movement, it's always great for us to, to grow and to evolve and to continue to find ways to advocate for the best health possible because not everyone is going to grow sadly enough not everyone is going to grow vegan for ethical reasons um however maybe if we can highlight that just from a health perspective it's also you know it's also much better for people to follow a whole foods plant-based diet if you like this episode please make sure to subscribe to our show rate us leave us a comment if you're listening with itunes and as always tell all of your vegan friends For any comments or suggestions, including potential guests both in Australia and abroad, please feel free to email us at hello at veganwomencollective.com. The Vegan Women Collective podcast is recorded, mixed and produced by myself, Rachel LaMarche. I thank you again for listening and I'll talk to you soon. Cheers! <laughs>